plugs play pedagogy. I'm Kyle Stedman from Rockford University. You're hearing episode four, A New Hope for Games in the Classroom, which is, wait for it, the first of two episodes on gaming and pedagogy. Over these two episodes, you'll hear a legion of smart people, a horde of smart people, a league, a clan, a guild of smart people talking about how games intersect with the teaching of composition, rhetoric, and related fields. I see these two episodes as fleshing out the title of my show really nicely. I mean, here's what I discuss here. Technologies that you plug in, the various ways people play around with those electronic technologies, and then how they end up in our pedagogies. Well, guess what I've been plugging in and playing with since kindergarten? Games. In putting these episodes together, I was glad to follow the leadership of these episodes' co-editor, Stephanie Vai, who's Associate Professor of Writing and Rhetoric at the University of Central Florida, a campus where I once played disc golf when I lived in Orlando. Here's Stephanie now. Hey Kyle, thanks for having me on the show. I'm Stephanie Vai at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, and I've been listening to Plugs Play Pedagogy since the beginning. And that, in fact, is why you're hearing this episode today. At the end of his first episode, Kyle suggested if listeners had ideas for future episodes, or if they wanted to contribute to the podcast, they should contact him. So, here I am. I'll back up and I'll explain a little more. As I listened to the first few episodes of the podcast, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was an episode on using games in the classroom? I know so many people who are doing great things with games in their teaching. So I contacted Kyle, and not only did he say, great idea, he generously asked if I wanted to work with him as a co-editor of the episode. And then, after we started interviewing people in RetComp who teach with games, we realized we had such a treasure trove of responses that we'd need to do two episodes to really do justice to them all. So, here we are, a two-episode span of Plugs, Play, Pedagogy, focusing on games and rhetoric and composition. Part one deals roughly with the pedagogical. How do you use games in the classroom? You can keep listening to find out more from our interviewees. Part two takes a bit of a turn to the theoretical. What issues emerge from studying and teaching with games? How can we scaffold our classrooms to best support game studies? I hope you'll tune in to hear the second installment because we have some great conversations to showcase. One reason I'm really excited about this episode and one reason I'm excited to have Stephanie as co-editor is that I feel like I'm on the outside of games pedagogy and research. And I feel like I'm on the outside of the gamer identity in some ways. I have no idea if I'm a gamer or not half the time, or maybe I should say that I feel like a gamer, even though I don't think I would count to a lot of other people. So here's an example. In a class on digital rhetoric once, I had students analyzing the rhetorical strategies of games that are indexed at Games for Change, which are all games about social justice in one way or another. And some of the students asked me if I was a gamer. I kind of flubbed around my answer a little bit, saying that, well, the newest system I have is a GameCube, and, you know, I never really game with anyone online, I don't really play first-person shooters, even though now that I mentioned that, I do remember passing around the five floppy disks of the DOS version of Doom 2 with my friends in ninth grade. But when I said how old-fashioned I was to these students when it comes to video games, some of my students said right away, well, you're not a gamer then. And then someone said, well, what did you play most recently? So I told the story of how I had been getting my old copies of Riven and Final Fantasy VII working on a modern PC, and that changed some of their minds. I I guess because of the technical trickiness of it, I don't know. When it comes to board games, I'm always the one trying to convince friends to play complicated games with me. You know, I like sitting around tables and chatting, trying to figure out rules that are as long as a book. But I'm still not really part of those gaming communities. I don't spend all my time in those gaming stores, and I don't spend a lot of money on these games. I save up and save up and save up and buy very infrequently. So here's my point. I really like this stuff. I like games, and it's made its way into my teaching here and there. And I like hanging out with people who study games and rhetoric. But I'm not the expert. So luckily, the experts are out there, the people who literally wrote the books and articles and websites and podcasts on this stuff. Before we hear from those people, though, let's hear about more of this tricky question of gaming identity from Stephanie. I really like what Kyle has to say here about gaming and identity. 
The reason why is because I play and research casual games, things like Candy Crush Saga and Animal Crossing. And casual games and gamer identity has been a fraught subject in rhetoric and composition, as well as in game studies in general. What I mean by this is that, even though I label myself as a gamer, and I feel like I'm on the inside of the gamer community, there's still a lot of complexity with being primarily a casual gamer. I don't play World of Warcraft or other massively multiplayer online games. I don't play well with others usually. I like first-person shooter games, and I like to play my games alone. And, like I mentioned before, I love to crush candies. When I need time to relax, I reach for my iPad and I play a few games of Candy Crush Saga. Or I boot up my PlayStation and I roll up some planets in Katamari Damacy. I still consider myself a gamer, but do you think I am? So, hearing Kyle talk about gaming and identity and expertise, I'm excited. I think this is a conversation we need to keep having. In my mind, no one should be left out. No one should feel like they can't talk about gaming or try gaming in the classroom. So I guess that's part of what I hope these two podcasts can help do. Broaden on our understanding of who gamers are and what gaming in the classroom could be. I really see the rest of this episode is falling roughly into two chunks. In part one, we'll hear four brief segments with some very specific ways to include games in the classroom. Get ready to take notes because it's that good, or you can just read the transcript and the show notes later. Then in part two, we'll take a bit more time with rhetoric and game scholar Samantha Blackman, who will tell us about her experience working games ever more into the curriculum at her school. So let's move bravely into part one, ideas for teaching with games. First, we'll hear from Jason Custer, a PhD student in rhetoric and composition at Florida State University. Hello, my name is Jason Custer. I'm a PhD student at Florida State University, and I've been integrating video games into my pedagogy for just over two years now. In particular, I've been teaching a course titled ENC 1145, It's Dangerous to Go Alone, Take This, writing about the rhetoric of video games. At Florida State University, first-year composition is broken into two separate course requirements. The first course requirement is filled by ENC 1101, a course which is focused on helping students develop strong practices for college writing focused on peer workshops, drafting, and emphasizing process. The second semester requirement can be filled by one of a few different courses. ENC 1102, ENC 1142, and ENC 1145. Perhaps the most important thing these courses have in common is a focus on research methods for undergraduate students. Thus, the project I asked my students to complete in my ENC 1145 course brings together Ian Bogo's theory of procedural rhetoric with asking students to play a game of their own choosing and do research on the way or ways that the game mounts a procedural rhetoric by researching real-world processes represented in the games of their choosing. So how does this work, and what does it look like in practice? Let's dive into this on a week-by-week basis for the five-week unit of my course, which I focus on procedural rhetoric and research. Week 1. In the first week of this unit, we read Ian Bogost's The Rhetoric of Video Games, and we discuss it in class. After this, I play a whole bunch of Flash-based games with my students in class, including a couple of ones that I'll talk about briefly, which are Argument Champion, First Person Tutor, Phone Story, and Pandemic 2, amongst dozens of others. All of these are really simple Flash-based games that are really easy to jump into. I like to use Flash-based games since Google's Chrome browser comes with Flash built into it, and the computer classrooms I teach in have Chrome installed already, meaning gameplay is possible without any installations or hang-ups whatsoever 99% of the time. Week 2. During this unit of my course, I like to ask my students to play a game in support of procedural rhetoric outside of class. In the spring of 2014, the game I selected was a game called Papers, Please by Lucas Pope. During the second week of this unit, I ask students to develop Google Slides presentations in small groups to define the ways in which Papers, Please either does or does not present a procedural rhetoric, emphasizing the importance of design of the slides based on principles we've already talked about in the course. Students then spend time in class presenting their designs, talking about the choices they made, and of course talking about what, in what ways and how they felt that Papers, Please did or did not present a procedural rhetoric to the player. Week 3. Week 3 is dedicated to holding conferences in my office. I ask my students to put together proposals for the project that they're going to do, and then I end up meeting one-on-one with the students to, with their proposal to ensure that they've selected a game or a series of games that fits or clashes with Ian Bogos' procedural rhetoric. 
Then I advise them on how they might research a claim that the game or games they've selected either successfully or unsuccessfully makes using the procedural rhetoric found in their gameplay mechanics. Week 4. In the fourth week, I bring students into the library to receive a presentation from the staff there on the available resources for research. Then, in that same week, I end up doing exercises focused on formatting and citing resources, followed by an in-class workshop amongst their peer review groups. Week 5. In the final week of this unit, students put together their final workshop activity, and they focus on how the structure of their arguments in their projects is working or not before finally submitting them to me after week five. In the end, this project encourages students not only to play games, thereby developing procedural literacy as Bogos defines it in our classrooms, but it also pushes that literacy further by asking students to assess the rhetorical elements of video games by supporting their claims with research. Students completing this project have completed a host of fascinating projects, including an analysis of the ways that Super Mario Sunshine, developed by Nintendo for the GameCube, mounts a procedural rhetoric about the importance of environmentalism using its water and cleaning-based mechanics. Others have shown how flash-based games like Phone Story present a mixed representation of how smartphones are made using a series of five mini-games, some more successful than others, at exhibiting a procedural rhetoric. By asking students to examine a real-world phenomenon as represented through game mechanics, not only can we encourage students to develop and exhibit procedural literacies, but it provides a fantastic vessel for encouraging students to complete further research and to analyze texts using video games as a prime example. That's it for me. My name is Jason Custer, and if you'd like to know more about the work that I've done with what I call video game-infused pedagogy or the course that I teach at Florida State University, please visit my website, which is one word, videogameinfusedpedagogy.weebly.com. Thank you. You can follow more of Jason's work at jasoncuster.weebly.com, that's C-U-S-T-E-R, and watch his teaching-related tweets at Custer Teaching, which uses the Triforce as its icon, which is amazing. Next up is Matt Beal, who's a PhD student at Old Dominion University, where you'll find a lot of games-loving rhetoricians these days. Hi, so um, I wanted to talk to you all today about uh, a game that I use to help teach um, HTML to students. Uh, I I haven't actually used this yet. It's kind of like in the, the design phase. I think I'm going to use it later this semester, though. But it has to deal with... Um, I'm going to ask the students to create a like just a simple web page, like just one web page, no links or anything like that, with a, like a wrestling character persona. Um, and so... I, I like wrestling just because it's kind of like this funny, goofy sort of like not super serious persona they can they can make up for themselves, and so they have to on this web page they have to write the like in the HTML code they have to come up with uh, like a wrestler name, um, so you know something like John Mad Dog Williams or Brianna the Cobra Holloway whatever their full name is, and then like you know that typical wrestler name nickname in the middle. Um, they have to insert a picture of themselves doing like a silly wrestler pose. Um, they have to create a signature move because, of course, every wrestler has a signature move. Um, so something you know that kind of fits with whatever every character that they're they're coming up with. Um, and then they also on the page they have to write um, s- like stats for their their wrestling character and so there's three categories of stats that they have they have strength agility and intelligence um i thought about doing it with more categories at first but i it it just got too complex and so i narrowed it down to those three um and basically what they have is so they have strength agility and intelligence and they have 10 skill points that they can assign as they wish to those those um characteristics so like for example you might have one wrestler who has a strength of four um an agility of five and an intelligence of one so you have like a kind of like a quick strong uh relatively dumb person (laughs) um so what they do so each each student will have this web page with these stats on it for their wrestler character um, and then I'm going to have them do kind of like this battle royale sort of thing where, um, oh, another point that I forgot to mention is that on the web page as well, they also have to insert 
the stamina of the wrestler, and each wrestler, every wrestler has 15 stamina points. So then what happens is, like, they'll break into groups where they'll have, like, these, they'll have their HTML pages up in front of them as they're, they're battling their partner, like, as they're, quote-unquote, wrestling their partner in this HTML. Um, and each group will get uh, two dice. And basically what they'll do is they'll roll each student will roll the dice and so one person for like like player one will roll the dice um and the dice the numbers are assigned to the individual categories so for example so the numbers one and four are assigned to the strength stat two and five are assigned to the agility stat three and six are assigned to the intelligence stat so if i roll two dice and i roll a two and i roll a six so I get the agility stat and the intelligence stat for my wrestler. Um, whatever I assigned to those stats um, in my skill points, that's how much damage I do to their uh, stamina. So I roll a 2 and a 6, I, that means that I have to use my agility and my intelligence stat for that attack. Um, so like that example that I used before, let's say I had a wrestler with an agility of 5 and an intelligence of 1. So I use my agility stat of 5 and my intelligence stat of 1, 6. So I do 6 damage to their um, to their stamina. So in their HTML code, um, like they have to edit that stamina down. So um, this is supposed to... Ideally, this is this is supposed to get at like not only with the design of like they're each designing their web pages um, of this persona, but also kind of like the iterative design process of these um, of HTML and the way that it's never um, static, right? It's always it's always in flux. It can always be changed. Um, it's not a permanent kind of writing or, or that um, maybe we traditionally think of. So um, I hope that makes sense. Uh, the last point of this is that the is the the super move. So if they roll doubles right in the game, so if I'm rolling my dice and I roll you know two fives, it doesn't matter what the number is. If I get any kind of doubles, that means I get to use my super move. Um, that that super move that they listed on their their wrestling persona, um, I can use my super move, and so that does an automatic eight points of damage to the their opponent's stamina bar. So it's really strong course but the person has an opportunity to counter this and so if i roll two fives i roll doubles if the person can also if they can roll doubles as well um they can counter it and then they they cancel that super moves attacks and so it's like a counter attack um they can't do this for everything like it's just kind of like this matter of going back and forth back and forth to see who can do the most damage to the other person's stamina kind of uh, as fast as possible um, and then kind of editing down the stamina in the HTML itself as the um, as the game goes on for each time and then of course like they'll rotate um, I, I'm, I'm going to set up brackets sort of like on the whiteboard and so like you know to kind of keep track of like who's going to win the tournament or for the class or whatever it might be um, and then uh so they'll edit them back up as they get new partners. And again, that just kind of goes back to that whole, you know, this HTML is, is there to be changed and altered as necessary kind of to fit the needs of your, um, your users and, and, you know, what your, just kind of like the immediate context, um, of your audience. And so in this case, the audience is sort of like your opponent. So, um, I hope that makes sense. Uh, this has been Matthew Beal at Old Dominion University. Uh, if you have any questions about the game, you're welcome to email me at mbeal009 at odu.edu. I'd be happy to talk with you more about it, or if you have some ideas of how I, I can improve it, or if you've done anything similar in your classes, I would love to hear about it. Uh, thanks very much. Watch out for Matt's mad tweeting skills at CoffeeBreak808 on Twitter and his mad karaoke skills next time you see him at a conference. Just ask. Third, we'll hear from Phil Alexander, a Heenan Wilkins Fellow and visiting assistant professor in the English department in the Armstrong Institute for Interactive Media Studies at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. So, ways that I use gaming in the classroom. 
two things come to mind in particular, so you can use either or both of these if you'd like. The first is not as classically a gaming thing as it might seem like on the surface, but over the summer I started using a website called habitrpg.com. If you haven't taken a look at it, you might want to check it out. Essentially, it's a to-do list, but it's set up in such a way that it works like a role-playing game. So you gain experience points, and you have different spells you can cast, and things like that. So what I noticed about it when I first started using it is that if you're at all a gamer, you kind of get attached to the fact that you have a little avatar up the corner. And if you forget to do things for your first day, you die. So you log in in the morning, and you go to Habit RPG, and there's a little ghost instead of your avatar, and it says, you have died, you've lost X amount of gold, please press this button to respawn. So dying's not a really big deal at first in terms of what it does to your experience, but to anyone who's familiar with games, and I have found now using this with students, even with those who may claim that they aren't gamers, there's kind of a visceral response to seeing this character that represents you die on screen. What I did this fall was for each of my classes, I mapped all of their homework and all of their major assignments to a quest for Habit RPG and had them all sign up. So the first day they created their avatars and, you know, some of them were a little skeptical that this was going to be interesting at all. Some of them were kind of excited. So I explained to them how to add their own tasks to how to customize everything so that they had it just the way they wanted it. But what I told them was they would find if they did their homework and they remembered to update things throughout the semester, they would gain in level and they would be just fine. But if they logged in in the morning and saw that they'd lost health, they'd know that they weren't doing the work they needed to do. Lo and behold, things went really well for the first week or two, and then the middle of week three, one of my students walked up to me and said, oh my god, I died. And at first I didn't realize the context, and I was very confused. Then the student said, I forgot to do my blogs, and they caught up to me and I died. And so I used that in class as a moment to say, you know, here, look, if you haven't been doing these particular pieces of homework, here's what's happening to your character. And as a result, I've seen so far this semester, and given I'm only halfway through the term, just a little past halfway, but I've seen about a 35% increase in people doing their day-to-day homework, and I didn't have a single late assignment for the first or second submission. A thing that I like to do with classes that have a lot of group work is I like to start them out by having them play a game that's collaborative. Often I'll pick something like World of Warcraft that I'm really familiar with, or something like League of Legends that the students seem to be, at least those who are gamers, seem to be really familiar with. And I'll take not a whole lot of class time, maybe 10-15 minutes, to explain to them how the game works, and then I have them jump in and actually start playing. One of the things I stress to them before they start playing is that if you're playing a game where you're on a team, Everyone on the team has to be able to execute or you will die. That's one of the one of the foundational pieces from my research is discovering what happens when you have a player that doesn't understand their role or simply refuses to play their role. So I take my students through a quick example showing them how that works. So after talking them through that, what I like to do is show students a game. And more recently, I've been using League of Legends because it's free and it's so much quicker for students to pick up. But I'll show them the game. Sometimes I'll have them watch maybe two or three minutes of Twitch video of someone else playing, mostly because it's fun to see like the World Championship guys and how excited they get. And also it kind of gives the game a little more legitimacy. But once they have a basic idea of how to play, I'll break them into groups and have them start playing the game. And what they discover is the people who are kind of flippant towards gaming or who claim that they don't like to game or don't know what games are, the games are for kids, will either not play or will not really pay attention to how they're playing. And quickly, their teams lose to the teams that are working together. And so I'll point out to the class after maybe one match or two, you know, listen to the classroom, listen to who's talking to each other, look at the ways that they're talking to each other, look at the things that their teams are doing on screen. It comes to the point where those teams that are not functioning well together either begin to fight, which I in a way wish wouldn't happen, but in a way I'm glad does happen. Or what will happen more often is that whichever one of them is the type A or the most type A personality will assert leadership and start directing the people that aren't doing anything who will then either begrudgingly fall in line or again result to fighting the end of roughly an hour, what I'll have the students do is reflect on the experience that they've had. And once they talk to me a little bit about what they learned from playing the game, every single time I've done this, thankfully, one of the very first things to come up is we realize that everyone has to carry their weight. And so I use that to transition into talking to them about group projects and the fallacy that people sometimes have that if one student is a quote-unquote good student or is quote-unquote really good in that class, that that person can carry everyone else. And I talk to them about the fact that it's not necessarily that everyone has to do an equal amount of work or that everyone's work has to be of an equal 
particular kind of value if they want to set a value to it. But I remind them to look at the game and the fact that everyone had to be participating and everyone had to be working in order for the group to get something done. And I think that through seeing that and through feeling that and getting just that vague sense of competition and that sense of camaraderie working together, it really helps students when they get into groups to do projects to understand that you can't sit there idly. And if you do, there will be consequences. Learn more about Phil's teaching and research at philalexander.com. And Phil has two L's, by the way, and at Phil Alexander on Twitter. Finally, here's Kevin Moberly, Associate Professor of Rhetoric, Digital Media, and Game Studies at Old Dominion University. Kevin is currently working on a book-length study about medieval-themed computer games, which he's co-authoring with his brother, Brent Moberly. So in this adventure in podcasting, which is what I'm sort of thinking of it. Um, you've asked me to detail some small aspect of how I use um, games and play in my teaching. And so what I'd like to talk about is an activity that I've used pretty successfully in my classrooms and that I've shared um, and um, have has been the focus of a few workshops I've done here at ODU. And that is I use puppets a lot in my classroom and not just any kind of puppets, but paperback puppets. So, why do I use paperback puppets? Um, to understand that, you have to understand I'm a um, social constructivist rhetorician. And so one thing that I'm really concerned about with my teaching is helping under students understand the roles that they're asked to play, um, either at, when, they're, when they're in the classroom or as in World of Warcraft, um, when they're asked to play a death knight and how the um, sort of genres of the, that constrain the performances and the affordance and all, and all those things kind of construct, um, sort of allow them to say and act in certain ways and kind of restrict them to, from, from acting and, and, and um, participating in other ways. The reason I, I try to do this is so the students can sort of recognize, okay, number one, what's expected of me when I'm asked to write a research paper in a class? What kind of performance am I being asked to? How should I construct myself? What's possible? And what should I avoid as, as if I'm playing the role of an MLA or APA certified scholar? In the same way that um, when you switch from say, the Death Knight to a Druid, to a Rogue, to a Paladin. You have to work within, be aware of certain affordances and things like that, which let you do things and let you um, not do other things. Okay, so how do puppets tie into this. Well, what's the exercise? I guess I should start with the exercise. That would make more sense. Um, for homework, um, on the day that I have students make puppets, I have them watch um, Jay McGonigal's TED Talk, you know, the one basically that games will save the planet and save the universe and redeem our souls from all that, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I also have them um, read a uh, report um, that was um, that was um, commissioned by a textbook publisher on how games can be used in education. This report has five sections in it, and each of the sections details, um, you know, how games can help in education and the limitations and so on and so forth. So I break the um, students in, into, into five groups, and so that's usually three or four students in the group, and then I have them make puppets, paper bag puppets. I bring in um, uh, construction paper, bags, of course, glue, scissors, band-aids, you know, um, power tools, anything that you need to make paper bag puppets with or that you can would considerably need. And I and I tell the students to make paper bag puppets in the group and then to do working together to stage a TED talk that basically uh, presents to the class what the main ideas of this uh, of the five sections I've assigned them. So um, there's a couple of rules that I impose on this. The first one is that the presentations need to be five to seven minutes long. It's not that the students will um, rarely will go over five or seven minutes, but um, I feel like oftentimes they'll go under. So I want to, you know, put an um, put a sort of an ambitious time limit on this so that you know, make some sort of ground for material and also sort of forces them to do a little bit of rehearsing beforehand to see if they're going to make that goal. Second, um, everybody in the group has to have a puppeting speaking part. 
you know, um, if not, you have one person who makes a puppet and the puppet does all the speaking and the rest of the puppets do kind of dancing in the background and stuff, which is kind of a kind of you get a kind of um, a Supreme sort of chorus, um, you know, um, more, more, more like Britney Spears music video effect. But it's, I don't you know, I want all the students to, to speak. And the third rule of the most important rule um, is that there should be no naked puppets. And by naked puppets, I mean a puppet that is just eyes and a mouth and um, a lot of brown paper bag puppet skin showing. I want the students to actually make clothes for the puppets, dress them up, give them props and um, so forth and so on. So the students do the presentations and they're, they're, they're pretty funny. Um, and then I have, a, I have a, a discussion after that. And one thing we discuss, of course, is what, what are the takeaways based on what the group said from the, um, the, the report on education and gaming. But the other thing I, I, I address is, the, you know, have the students sort of reflect on the choices they made when they um, constructed the puppets. For example, if they make a puppet that's very straight-laced or one that's hip-hop or something like that, I sort of say, okay, why are you why are you constructing a puppet this way to 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 talk about the um you know um talk about the section of the text what is it in the section of the text that that prompted you to think that this would be a um a good way to make a puppet and so that kind of sort of forces them to reflect on or prompts them rather to reflect on what the um you know on the kind of the how they're interpreting the, the, the what they're reading through through the genre of the puppet, and then you know we also talked about okay how the puppets sort of let them get away and say certain things, and how the puppets don't let them do other things, and so you know this exercise, um, you know at the end I tie this into you know this kind of okay whenever we write. Whenever we play games, and so in fact, we're, we're, we're constructing puppets for ourselves, and so that's it's, exercise in general is pretty effective. Um, I think for a number of reasons. Number one, it's fun and it's funny. It's sort of startling. The students really don't know what to, um, don't really expect it, and the report that I have them do is is really kind of dry. Um, to be honest, it's not. It's written for a textbook publisher, as I said. It's not written, you know, to be super provocative. Um, number two, you know, because it's dry and because our students are doing things like playing World of Warcraft and things in their spare time, they don't um, usually read the text um, that I assign um, very closely. So by making them do puppets and produce something concrete out of it, at least of, of, a, th of a small three to four. Uh, page section of it, then that then suddenly they have to engage the text and work together to produce meaning from it rather than me um, telling them that. And then finally, um, the exercise is pretty memorable. Um, the students, you know, oftentimes they'll take the puppets with them, and I have this vision of them carrying the puppets to their next class, or going to the dorm, or going to the cafeteria, or or meeting a friend outside and, and then, you know, the friend being like, why are you carrying us um, a paper bag puppet around? And then having the students have to explain the exercise and then, you know, um, think back on, on what they did and um, that kind of thing. So um, anyways, that's pretty much what I, um, how I use um, play and in, in, in gaming in the classroom to kind of engage students and, and, and to stir things up. To hear more from Kevin, check out his essay on the intersections of play and medievalism in Elizabeth Emery and Richard Utz's Medievalism, Key Critical Terms, and his chapter about modding and technical communication, which he co-authored with Rylish Moeller in Jennifer DeWinter and Ryan M. Moeller's Computer Games and Technical Communication. And if you're all like, man, there's a book called Computer Games and Technical Communication. I'd like to hear more from this Jennifer DeWinter person. You're in luck because we'll hear from her in the next episode of this very podcast because I can see in the future. That's just how I roll. With that, let's move on to part two, Not Your Mama's Gamer. Here to the end of the episode, you'll hear a conversation that Stephanie, remember my co-editor, and I had with Samantha Blackman over a Google Hangout. I heard Samantha speak at the 2014 meeting of computers and writing, where she gave the keynote, Your Code Ain't Like Mine, on being a woman in technology-intensive fields. 
She's associate professor of English at Purdue University and founded the blog and podcast, Not Your Mama's Gamer, which you essentially should go check out right away. It's at nymgamer.com. Get it? Notyourmamasgamer.com. I'm assuming that probably in this program you have students build some games of their own, right? Yes, that I do. Uh, in terms of uh, technologies, or, or how do you get students started? Especially since I imagine a lot of them haven't necessarily done that before. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it depends on what they're interested in. Um, some of the students build because when when we do in most of the classes, I kind of cheat. Um, we don't do just do uh, digital games. We also do analog games. So we have people who build analog games. We have people who use stuff like RPG Maker. Um, we have people who um, build text-based games. May you know build something. Um, you know, using something like C++. Um, And we have students who have used um, Twine. Um, Let's see, RPG Maker, Twine, Coding Command, board games, something else is totally, oh, we've had students do Flash games. Um, So they're just kind of broad um, in terms of what they're building because what they need to be fairly simple um, because we are working with 16 week semesters. so yeah, I'm but, yeah, so they, glad they, that you said that you have them build, or that some of them choose to build analog games, because yeah. I feel like sometimes, in all of our excitement about games, we sometimes forget that there are non-digital games. Oh yeah, and, and that was going to be yeah my one of my first questions. I'm thinking of of some of my audience who might not know anything about about this world at all, and I wonder when we say games, are we are we mostly talking video games? Or are we um, are, there, are there people who who are studying and writing stuff specifically about the analog? Mm-hmm. No, I think there are people who are writing um, specifically about both. It was pretty interesting um, in the last games based gra- games based graduate course. Well, second to last games based graduate course I taught. It was pretty funny because we were talking about game theory writ large, so talking about games kind of as a more of a survey model. Um, and so they were kind of shocked that they when they first came in, one of the first readings that they had to do was Lev Vygotsky. Um, and then I brought in tons of games like Don't Break the Ice and Shoots and Ladders and Candyland um, and made them play children's games um, as a beginning for talking about what play looks like at its more, at one of its more simple levels. And then before we got into the into the hardcore stuff. So they were kind of shocked. They were like. Did, did we sign up to play shoots and ladders? Um, but yeah, it was a blast. It turned it turned out to be kind of a great way to start conceptualizing what play looked like and what a game actually was. So, and yeah, and play is such a important word here, right? And yeah. play, like in kind of, I, I assume there must be strict technical definitions, but then there's just like the play that that you need to get stuff done. Play as an inventional technique. Play as being yes. being free to, to do what you want to do and follow your gut. And that, that seems so important in, in anything I do in, in an English or a rhetoric class. It's funny that you bring play and invention together because <laughs> I did something really mean to my, um, okay, it's not mean, it was funny. In my 591 <laughs> class, which is Intro to Comp Theory, which has nothing to do with games, um, it is just a survey class that introduces first-year students to composition theory. So, and this year I was like, yeah, this stuff is interesting, but it can be kind of dry. So I've been kind of going at it in a whole new way this year. This is like the third or fourth time that I've taught this course. Um, and it's one of our core classes, so it gets taught every year. Um, so when we were we were doing the our invention day, um, and one of the pieces we had read was Janice Lauer's piece on invention. And if Janice hears this, she's probably like, gonna like have a fit, but I brought in iPads and made them all play scribble knots to think about invention through games and, and paired it up with Janice Lauer. And they were kind of looking at me like I was totally insane at first, but then it made perfect sense. Um, so I sneak games in at all kinds of weird and um, unsuspecting moments. <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, it's funny because a lot of times when I bring play into my classes, it's through, you know, games or things like having my students play with Legos in order to teach technical and professional communication, things like that. And, you know, it's always like I feel like I'm being sneaky because at first they're all dubious. 
what are we doing here? Why is there a giant box of Legos? Or why are we playing a board game in class? And then as they get further and further along, they start realizing that these are really complex systems, there are rules, there's negotiation, and under the veneer of play, there's a lot of really complicated stuff. But if you just went in and said that, you know, like you said, some of this, in terms of the theoretical ideas, it can be really dry. Oh, yeah. You get in there and it's like, we're going to have fun and we're going to learn at the same time. It's the best way, I think. Oh, yeah, I'm totally with you on that one. Yeah, it sometimes takes a little bit of convincing, like, yes, we are going to play a game today. Or I'm going to make a game. And they have that, like, beat of, okay, I'll go along with this. <laughs> and then they get, I don't know about yours, but do they get really excited and, and you just, like, almost can't stop them? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Class and, like, now we need to talk about what's actually happened. No, 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 we're not done yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, that's the fun stuff, you know, and, and it's, it's fun to find those connections between games and non-game-based topics, right? Especially since, you know, games are such an interactive medium that sometimes they, those are the best ways to get at an idea with the depth that you can't just talking about it. Right. With depth and there's there's it's also a little bit lower stakes or it can be right, because you're not asking people to talk about their personal experiences, but you can play through experiences and experience those things. Um, what, what you're making me think of is um, when I when I was getting my master's, I, I worked in the office kind of randomly, even the office that adjudicated all of the, the accusations of plagiarism and cheating. So. I, I was the one who did the paperwork and set up the hearings. And, um, but on the positive side, I was one of the team kind of trying to creatively come up with ways to, to train, you know, to, to help people understand what is plagiarism, what isn't, what, how exactly um, will this be handled at the school. And I remember we, we got really excited about the idea of a game. And, and it never happened partly because the people talking didn't have the technical expertise. And, and you know, we, we were imagining kind of like a, like a second lifestyle, what you're walking through and then like you, you walk into your dorm room and your roommate says, hey, what about this? And, you, and then it kind of goes into a, you're, you're looking at, at papers and you're really trying to decide. Um, but it's like you said, put, there's something about putting yourself in the experience and an experience mm -hmm. like, like other experience. I don't, I don't know if I can say procedural rhetoric or not, if that's too complicated. But, but there's, no. there's something there about, about, um, about being there, having an analog to being there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think there's, there's kind of no way around it. It's like now, it's like I, whenever I'm teaching anything, I'm like, do games make sense here? And, and more often than not, they do, right? Um, I, I'm, I've, you know, I've used games in my minority rhetoric graduate seminar. Um, there, there was probably a little more resistance because that was like the first time I had done it in a non-games class. Um, and this was this was two years ago now, almost two years ago. So um, we had a lot of people who weren't who weren't aware that you know I was the games person, and they were like, "What the hell is she having us? Oops, what the heck is she having us do here?" Kind of thing. Um, but then, you know, the discussion that came after it, because I asked them to, have, have either of you played Bastion, Supergiant Games, Bastion? Well, it's a, it's a game which is a pretty interesting. It's a, um, they're colonizers and indigenous, and an indigenous race. Um, and basically the world's been destroyed. Um, and, you know, spoilers, the game's like four years old now, so I guess we can kind of give a little, give a few spoilers. That's but fine both sides are trying to rebuild the world and they're trying to rebuild it in the ways that they see fit. Um, but you are forced to play as this kind of, um, uh, this, the character that's just called the kid, um, who's playing through, according to his point of view, which you don't realize until the very end that, holy crap, I've just played through this entire game as the colonizer going through and killing this indigenous population that, you know, 
was billed to me as the bad guys, but what they were just trying to do was rebuild their world. So this kind of occurs to you at the end. And there were people in that class that were really pissed at me that I had made them play this game because they were like, you made us, you made us colonizers. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, but do you get what's going on here? So, but we were able to have that conversation and they didn't expect to experience it firsthand and to feel anything about the way that they experienced it. And that was that moment that I was like, oh, what the heck? I'm doing that every chance I can because that just made sense. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, there's there's all kinds of ways to use games in the classroom that's not a games-based classroom, if that makes any sense. Definitely. Yeah, I think you've kind of alluded to some of what I'm going to ask you about here in your last response, but mm-hmm. along with all the positives, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered with trying to <laughs> games in? Um, in a non-games-based classroom, resistance is always one, um, especially for people who don't see the value in games. Um, and, you know, luckily, most times they do come back and see, whoops, and see some some value in it, um, even after the fact. Um, materiality is another real problem, right? They're having, having the necessary technology, um, you can't expect that students are going to have the, the technology necessary to play. Um, so like I said, I've been doing this for several years now, so I've kind of been able to beg, borrow and steal some equipment from, uh, more money for, for equipment from, um, from various sources so that we have a a small, um, we call it a lab. It's not really, but a small lab set up where we have consoles and TVs and projectors. Um, and we have a cart of, um, dual booted Mac laptops and they have steam loaded on them for playing games. Um, and these get, you know, for, cause I'm not the only person who teaches with games at this point. We have a lot of our graduate students who are um, doing really smart things in the classroom with games. Um, and especially in our comp and professional writing courses. Um, so, you know, having the, the, the hardest part, the biggest struggle um, has really been having the necessary equipment to play games. Yeah, that's something that I've run into as well. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I was excited to hear you talk about analog games is because, you know, that's one of the things that no matter what your technological access is on campus, we can generally bring board games into the class very easily. I can have my students create games using paper and pen pretty easily. And Mm -hmm. I found that, you know, it's it's funny, but I teach at a research institution and it's still very difficult for me to bring games into the classroom in particular ways just because of our technological access. And, you know, we've run into these issues at UCF where we have a lot of online courses and hybrid courses because we don't have any space. You talked about a lab and I was like, I would kill to have a lab of any kind. So here's the funny story about how this lab came to be. Mm-hmm. Um, when we, we first got this space, it was actually our, um, our college tech person was housed in, um, in our building and they had this awesome, huge space. Um, and they worked out of the space as much as IT folks work. And um, (laughs) I love our IT folks, let me say that. Mm -hmm. But I went to the department head one day and I said, look, they've got this huge space and I wanted, what do I have to do to get it? (laughs) And he said, well, what do you need it for? How will you use it? And where can you put them if I put them out? <laughs> I wish he had said, you've got to play the game to get the space. I, but that's too much to well, hope. It was pretty much a game. It was like, not only did I have to justify it, but I had to play Tetris in a, in a building where there was like no space. So I'm like, well, there's this little room 
that we have some computers shoved in up on the fourth floor that has no windows. We can put them in there. Oh, wow. <laughs> Follow Samantha Blackman on Twitter at Safista. That's S-A-F-F-I-S-T-A. Don't forget to poke into Not Your Mama's Gamer at nymgamer.com. And with that, you might be thinking, game over. But no, remember, this is part one of a two-part episode. Next time, you'll get to hear from Rebecca Schultz-Colby, Richard Colby, Jennifer DeWinter, and maybe some surprises mixed in, too. Look to what's coming at first light on the fifth day at dawn in the east. No, 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 no. I mean, look for it in mid to, mid to late December at all the lovely places you usually look for Plugs Play Pedagogy, like at its home on writingcommons.org, through its feeds at iTunes or Stitcher or on Podigy. Special thanks to my co-editor for this and the next episode, Stephanie Vai from the University of Central Florida. If you're interested in helping me collect segments on a particular topic, if you're like, hey, I want to do this co-editing thing too, sounds fun, and I know things that Kyle doesn't, don't hesitate to contact me. I'm on Twitter at KStedman, where I keep an eye on the Plugs Play hashtag. You can always email me at plugsplaypedagogy at writingcommons.org. What's Writing Commons? Well, it's a free, constantly growing, constantly improving online textbook for all flavors of writing and rhetoric. I also produce the show in cooperation with the good people at Kairos Cast, which is part of Kairos, a journal of rhetoric, technology, and pedagogy. Surely you know about that. And while we're doing this end matter stuff, I should also mention that this podcast is licensed by a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial 4.0 international license. And that is a really good thing. My theme music is by Cactus May, graduate student in rhetoric and composition at Ohio University. And as always, you also heard some amazing music from the good people at Overclocked Remix, which you should check out at ocremix.org. For a list of exactly which tracks I use, check out the show notes and or the transcript. I'll make sure to include links and uh, credit in both of those places because it's that good and it's free. I'm Kyle Stedman from Rockford University, recording in Rockford, Illinois. We had five inches of snow come down just last week, just in time for Thanksgiving, I guess, which kind of makes you want to go outside and, well, you know, play. This is Plugs Play Pedagogy. (laughs) 